This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving and a nice break. Um, I told a couple of you, but this past Sunday, I had planned to go to the monastery. And so I did that. I drove up there. Zen Mountain Monastery, that is. And it was a, a wintry day. There was a light coating of snow on the ground. And um, the following day was the first snow in New York City. And um, you know, that day was cold and overcast. And so it had a little bit of a, I, I guess it fit, it fit my mood. It had a little bit of a, a nostalgic feeling. And as I drove in, I felt the same fluttering that I in my stomach that I felt, you know, for more than 20 years, pretty much every time that I left for more than a day. And then I would come back and always as I was driving in or as I was walking in, if I had taken the, the bus, I would feel this, this fluttering, um, a, a mix of slight anxiety and anticipation, a little bit of angst and excitement. And um, I actually, for the briefest moment, as I was getting uh, close, I was driving, and as I was getting close, I actually thought of turning back. Uh, and it reminded me, many years ago, I, I doing one of the wilderness um, retreats that we did at the monastery, the ones that we did on campus, if you will, were to teach people how to, how to actually camp and um, backpack and, and not car camping, but to actually really uh, camp in the woods and how to treat your food and, and how to actually even do a little bit of survival camping if you needed, if you needed to do that. And there was one student, a longtime student, who signed up for the retreat. And the retreat started on a Tuesday afternoon and it went until Sunday. And so Tuesday afternoon comes, everybody, all the participants are coming. We're helping them to set up their tents. And it's, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, and Paul has not shown up. And so finally at dinner time, I, I believe Shugen, uh, at the time, Shugen Sensei went up to the monastery just across the road and tried calling him. And it turned out that Paul had stopped in Kingston and checked into a hotel because he was so petrified <laughs> of actually doing the retreat. He was completely a city, city person. He became so petrified of spending the week in the woods that he thought, I, I just, I can't. I can't do it. So he checked himself into a hotel and, you know, 20 minutes away, 25 minutes away. 
And so Shugen Roshi really, Shugen Sensei really uh, talked him down, you know, really uh, calmed him down and said, you know, just, just come, just come. I mean, worst case scenario, you, you absolutely hate it. You can't do it. You just walk across the street and you stay at the monastery. You stay in one of the dorms. So, so really it's not that, that, that bad. So just come. And so he agreed with much trepidation and he arrived and the poor guy was petrified. I mean, you could see it in every cell of his being. But as the week progressed, he slowly, he slowly started to, to ease into it. And at the end, the retreat, um, it, it closed with a solo, with a 24-hour solo. So from, um, I guess it was from midday Friday to midday Saturday, uh, everybody would go up on the, the mountain. So we would pack everything up. We were across the road from the monastery. Everybody would pack everything up. We'd walk up the mountain and then everybody would choose a, a spot that was far away from everybody else. So, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we were all in the same general area, but you couldn't be within, within eyesight of any of the other campers. And then the three of us, usually Shugen Sensei, Ryushin Sensei and, and myself, uh, were camping, we had a base camp. So if anybody ran into trouble, they could just come and, and check in with us. And um, so everybody goes off to their, to their solos, a number of them relatively anxious about it, you know, spending 24 hours plus in the woods completely by themselves. But by this point, They've known how to, they've learned how to build a fire. They know how to treat their food. So they, they have all the basics, but none of them really has ever actually spent time alone in the woods. But they go off, they do it. Saturday rolls around, Saturday afternoon, and now Paul is not back. All of the campers are coming, you know, it's three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, Paul is doesn't come back, doesn't come back. Finally, around 6, 6.30, <laughs> he rolls into camp. And I swear that to this day, I really wish I had had a camera. I mean, he had turned into woodsman. I mean, he didn't want to leave. He said he really had to pull himself to come back into into civilization and so i really wish we had had the before and after because it was the transformation was palpable and i remembered i, I was remembering this uh, this incident you know as i was driving into the monastery and i was thinking how um that that slight fear that slight anxiety is is fitting you know, what Paul had was that, that sense of being by himself, right, in the woods, in an environment that was unfamiliar to him. And when I thought of the monastery itself, you know, it's this, if you really think about it, you know, you know you're entering an environment where you're going to have to face yourself. You're going to have to face reality, right, the, the world inside and the world outside, which as we know are not two things. That this is a place where you come to see and to be seen 
through. Because I'm certainly not the, the first or the last who expressed that, that uh, trepidation as they, were, as they were getting close. But it was really good to be there. It had been a couple of years since I had stepped on the grounds and it was really good to be there, even though my teacher wasn't. I found out a few days before that he was going to be away and I was so disappointed. I was so sad. Um, and even that, you know, it was really good to feel that and to feel again what I feel for him, what I feel for, for the relationship that we have formed over, you know, now almost three, three decades. And, um, and afterwards, I thought it was actually good to be there without him, who is such an integral part, right, of the place, uh, to feel it, in one sense, you know, just on, on my own. And, and then, of course, to think, well, I'll just have to go back. I'll just have to go back to see him. And I was, I was driving by myself, and so I had time. I was reflecting because I knew I was going to, to see you today, and I was reflecting on our, on our study, which, as you all know, we're wrapping up today, Understanding Our Mind by Thich Nhat Hanh. And we had agreed that we had, you know, relatively exhausted it, at least for now, exhausted the teachings, and we decided we would um, ready you know, to start something new with the coming year. And um, I've been reading a couple of things myself that I thought could, could inform our, our study. You know, as many of you know, I'm part of this um, group, uh, the Gen X uh, Buddhist Teachers Sangha. And a small group of us has been meeting every week to do a, uh, a study, a reading of Secularizing Buddhism by Richard Payne. And it's a, it's a collection of really academic articles, um, but many of them written by practitioners who are looking at the current Western secularization of Buddhism from a historical perspective, psychological perspective, religious, certainly, and um, we've had some really interesting, really stimulating discussions in the group. And the, the majority, there's about a, a dozen of us. And, and almost all of us identify as traditional religious Buddhists, right? And we, we believe in and teach Buddhism as we understand it, as it was handed down within our own traditions. Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana. And there is, in general, I would say, a, a certain mistrust of the secularization process, a, a concern of what Buddhism may be losing, as it relies more and more on psychology, on neuroscience, on spirituality, a, a, a kind of a, a self-help bent, and relies less on tradition on lineage, on certainly uh, transmission, specifically in Zen, right? Mind-to-mind -mind transmission. And some of the 
the quote-unquote metaphysical teachings that make Buddhism, as I understand it, a tradition really based on universal liberation and alleviation of suffering. And so there's a general anxiety about that, right? And what we may be losing. But there is one, one of us, there's, there's one teacher, at least in this group, who actually does identify as a secular Buddhist. And it's actually been very interesting, very interesting to listen to her. And um, based on our discussions and based on my own interest, I, I attended this tricycle talk with um, one of secular Buddhism's prominent teachers right now. His name is Wynton Higgins. He's Australian. Stephen Batchelor is the other, really the main proponent of this. And I was um, intrigued. I am intrigued you know, by, by their framework, which they generally describe as a culture of awakening. And this is Batchelor's term. And so, so the emphasis is on living an awake life and carrying out what Batchelor calls the four tasks instead of the four truths. And this actually appears in the sutras. There, there, there are sutras in which the four noble truths are referred to as the four tasks. Um, the truth of suffering is uh, said to be, it's, it's, we must be, um, it must be recognized. The root of suffering craving is to be abandoned. The end of suffering is to be experienced and the way to the end of suffering in the form of the path is to be cultivated. Right, and so in this sense, it's, it's not so different. And, and Stephen Batchelor just stresses that these aren't just, um, uh, that is not just a paradigm, that, that these are tasks that we need to carry out. The, the main difference is, you know, there is an absence of ritual. There's no mention or particular interest in the teachings of karma and rebirth, you know, the, the notion of multiple lives. But if you could just hold this, this concept of that culture of awakening, just hold it in your mind because we can, I'd like to come back to it. And so there's, there's on, on one hand, there's this kind of study that I've been doing. I also just finished reading Yuval Noah Harari's uh, latest book, 21st, uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And it's a little bit of a depressing book, to be honest, um, at, at least if he's right about the dangers of AI, of artificial intelligence, what, what it could do for society, then it's rather grim rather grim outlook of, of our future. But I'm not willing to discount his vision uh, altogether either because he does seem to have an uncanny ability to, to hold the big picture in mind, right? And to offer some possibilities of where we could be headed, humanity that is, given where we've been. 
And for me, most tellingly, is that the 21st lesson that he, he um, uh, explores and that he ends his book with is meditation. And I didn't know, actually, that he's a longtime Vipassana practitioner. He's been practicing for more than 20 years. Uh, he originally uh, did a retreat with Goenka. And he acknowledges that meditation is not a, um, the end-all and be-all of, of, of the issues that we face, that, that the fact that even if everybody meditated doesn't mean that we could resolve you know, the issues that we're facing. But he also points out that without the kind of self-knowledge that practice brings, without a clear understanding of our minds, what makes us tick, as I often say, we don't have much of a chance of, of really tackling you know, life's questions. And so, so this is one thing he says. People ask, when I die, will I just vanish completely? Will I go to heaven? Will I be reborn in a new body? These questions are based on the assumption that there is an I that endures from birth to death. And the question is, what will happen to this I at death? But what is there that endures from birth to death? The body keeps changing every moment. The brain keeps changing every moment. The mind keeps changing every moment. And the distinction that he makes is the brain as uh, the repository of this collection of neurons firing um, in response to outward stimuli, the mind being the, this is my wording, but the processing mechanism for feelings, for thoughts, for emotions of what it is that we're experiencing. And so the two are not um, interchangeable from his perspective. The closer you observe yourself, the more obvious it becomes that nothing endures even from one moment to the next. So what holds together an entire life? If you don't know the answer to that, you don't understand life. And you certainly have no chance of understanding death. If and when you ever discover what holds life together, the answer to the big question of death will also become apparent. Now, if you remember, this has echoes of Thich Nhat Hanh's to be or not to be is not the question. One who realizes, I believe he says, being and non-being, or what goes beyond being and non-being has no fear. I'm butchering the quote a little bit. And I agree. I agree that the question isn't what will happen to me after I die. The real question is what is happening to me now? Who is the me that things are happening to? How do I live in the best possible way as I travel from life to death? And in order to even begin 
to fathom these questions, we really have to slow down. We have to get very, very quiet and we have to look closely. Because we know that everything that is happening out there on a micro level is happening in here at a micro level. That we don't actually respond to what is out there. We respond to what is happening in our bodies and minds as we take in input from the world. So if I read, as I did this morning, a piece of news about Mississippi's, Mississippi's um, 15 week abortion ban, my anger or my distress or my fear is not actually based on the piece of news, is based on the sensations in my body when I read it. And this is a really important point to understand. And it fits actually very nicely with a concept that I, that I quoted somewhere. There, uh, another book that I was reading by Antonio Damasio, who's a neuroscientist, and he was saying that it's our feelings sensations of pleasure and pain, illness and well-being that fuel our reflection and our search, our search for well-being, which he encapsulates as homeostasis. So, so both him and Harari are basically bringing, you could say, the, the, these metaphysical questions and very much grounding them in the body and saying, we ask the things that we ask about. We even embark on a spiritual path not because of any abstract notion, actually, of what might happen of, um, about life after death, but because of what we're experiencing now, the fear, the joy, the discomfort, the pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so it's not abstract, it's not intellectual. It's the burning in my stomach. It's the dry throat, the firing of neurons in my brain in response to my reading the piece of news, in response to my own thoughts about myself that create the suffering that I'm experiencing. <clears throat> so the problem is not that social media exists, for example, but that when we created it, we didn't actually stop to consider the impact, the social, the political, the economic impact that it would have on us, the very real impact on a teenager who already has a severely eroded sense of self-worth. What these little buttons, these likes will do to that teenager and their sense of themselves, right? The presence or absence of these likes, these digital uh, endorsements, if you will. What the effect would be when, when you create a platform in which everyone can in uh, very disembodied ways spew their rage their confusion, their sense of alienation. 
So of course the problem is not that we create, is that we don't often understand the consequences of what we're creating. And this is a big argument that Harari is making. The problem is not that we've created artificial intelligence, is that we don't understand where it's actually going to go and what its effect is gonna be on us. I mean, generally speaking, we haven't built our lives to allow for much introspection. But this means that no externally oriented action, no matter how skillful, will bring us the peace that we crave so much. And by this, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be out protesting, lobbying, voting, that there shouldn't be lawyers or politicians, activists in the world. But what I'm saying is that without the critical piece, the inner knowledge, all other actions prove ineffective in the long run. Which takes me back to our study. I am interested in study in the kind of study that transforms. I'm interested in reading books that will inspire me to, to reach, to work hard to see, that will challenge me to, to, to try to be ever clearer about my place in things. And I just really want to encourage you also, I mean, we, we'll do our study on our own, we'll continue. But I really would like to encourage all of you to also bring that into your life as you're able into your practice, right? So when I meet with you one-on-one, -on -one, I, I don't often hear questions about what you might be reading, actively studying. And I think it's really important. It's a really important part of, of practice because as I've explained in the past, it creates a framework for the teachings, hopefully for the insights that we're experiencing on the cushion. And because it does force us to really come out of our own little square, our, our own head, our own body, and, and make that very overt connection, translation between what is happening here and what is happening out there. So I just want to encourage you to, to, to think about um, how, to, how to study more actively. This is Harario again. If you can understand what happens to you as one moment ends and another moment begins, you will also understand what will happen to you at the moment of death. If you can really observe yourself for the duration of a single breath, you will understand it all. That's a big claim. He's essentially saying, if you can understand what breath is, if you can understand the one who is breathing, you will understand it all. If you can understand what happens in that moment when the breath ends and the next breath begins. 
same as this moment and the next moment. If you can clearly see this, you will understand it all. I've said before that every bit of suffering that we experience, every bit of suffering that we experience stems from the I. This one letter word, this hairline crack that becomes a chasm, the distance between heaven and earth, as Fayan, quoting the third ancestor, said, a hair's breadth of distance is like the distance, a hair's breadth distance is like the distance between heaven and earth. There's something wrong there, but close enough. So what is necessary then? Personally, I believe that it is to put everything that we have into understanding this I, this I. Not simply to be a better version of this I, you know, calmer, kinder, wiser. So that would be great. I mean, that would be really nice. But understanding very clearly what the whole thing rests on. And, and I really do mean the whole thing, the whole universe, the whole catastrophe, as my teacher used to say. The whole beautiful, wondrous mess. So, with our study, I'd just like to go back a bit. I'd like to, to, to go back, not quite to basics, not really, but sort of. I'd like to simplify a little bit and read uh, Koso Uchiyama's Opening the Hand of Thought, which I have um, referenced a number of times lately. And there are a couple of editions. So um, I will email you the one that we'll be using. There's actually, I found a PDF online. Um, it's just the chapters are broken out differently. So I'll, I'll send that to you. It has 10 chapters. So we'll just take one each month. And what I'd like to do is to ask you, each one of you, to each time we're going to get together to do the study to bring at least one question or one response, one presentation, if you will, to the chapter, right? So if you, if I was asking you, as we have been doing with the talks, which I haven't asked you, you have just chosen, most of you, what you'd like to speak about. But if I was asking you to give a presentation on one salient point of a chapter, what would it be? And as always, to have the, the emphasis be on how you experience it or don't experience it in your life. So that so that, that can really, um, you know, just enliven and enrich our conversation. And it's not just me presenting you what I think is relevant in the book. So, so you think of it as coming prepared to the study to give this little, this mini presentation on one particular point that 
stood out for you? I mean, and we, there's no way we would get to everyone, but everyone should be ready to do it. And, you know, Uchiyama, because he was very clear, because he was very grounded and fierce about practice and about bringing practice into daily life. You know, his, his sessions, some of you may know, which he did at Antaiji, a small temple in, in, in Tokyo, I believe. I believe. Um, everybody would just sit. There were no talks, no face-to-face -face teaching, no chanting, no work. Everybody would arrive. They would sit, face the wall, including him. There were no monitors, no teacher. It was just sitting. And that kind of bareness is difficult to replicate. I don't know if they're still sitting like that. Um, Okumura is, is one of his successors. And I thought for a while they were, they were still doing sessions here. No, there in the States like that. Um, I don't know if they still are. You know, that would be difficult. I think it would be very challenging to replicate over Zoom. But I'd just like you to get a taste of, of him and of that style of the, the practice and realization that comes out of that dedication, that commitment, and that simplicity, that bare boneness, the, the spaciousness and the curiosity really to, to ask and live into all the important questions. So, that's what we'll do. Let me end with this poem by David White. It's called Sometimes. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests conceived out of nowhere, but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you questions that have no right to go away. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.